Welcome back to Halford and Bruff Sportsnet 650. I'm Jamie Dodd, and for Halford, Halford and Bruff brought to you by the Delari family of Acura dealers. Experience the Delari difference today. Visit your nearest Delari Acura dealer today. Meticulously brewed for quality and taste, primetime craft beer is full flavor without compromise at a liquor store near you or visit the brewery to see how it's made. We are coming to you live from the Kintech studio, Kintech Canada's favorite orthotics provider, powered by thousands of five-star Google reviews. Sore feet, what are you waiting for? Kintech! All right. Yeah. That was even more excited. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. We have an open segment here, uh, so get your thoughts in. Now, we also, of course, will do what we learned at 8.30. Unlike the last couple of days where you've been playing for pride only, nothing on the line, nothing tangible on the line. Today, we have not one, but two prizes to give away for what we learned. Uh, one prize, a pair of tickets to the Canucks and the Bruins on Saturday. That's right, right, a Doug? All right. Those are two big That's a big good tickets. ticket That's, right there. Yeah. The the revenge game for that 4 nothing loss uh, against one of the best teams in the league. So that's a big one. And then what, what was the other one? Refresh my memory here. $100 gift card to Bridge Brewing. That's that's an incredible it's a really prize. Great in its own bucks right. of beer. Just a North fan. Lots, hundred bucks of beer. Get some beer. Text into the post game show after the game on Saturday night <laughs> with some wild takes. Uh, so if you want to be entered to win <laughs> the Canucks and Bruins tickets, include the ticket emoji. If you want to be entered to win the uh, the gift card to Bridge Brewing, include the beer emoji. You can include both. Double your chances. To win something, uh, and we'll pick a pair of what we learns and announce the winner at 8.30. So get your text in, 650-650. Before we do that, I know there were a couple of uh, power play-related texts that caught your eye in the inbox. Bob. Um, Bob texted in, the power play is so frustrating to watch. They just pass the puck around the perimeter for two minutes without taking shots. What happened to rebounds and deflections? What happened to the PD one-timer? Al from Nelson, I think he asks a very good question here. And he says, can somebody please answer this question? What is the objective of our power play? Like, what would you say you do (laughs) here? And Al continues, seriously, mostly it seems as though there is no targeted uh, slash set play with this group. Maintain possession and repeatedly rip the puck around the perimeter. Mission accomplished. Of course, we all agree we need more from the top unit. But watching them last night got me thinking, is there a set play in place? Or are we passing around waiting for something to open up or materialize? Um, let's talk about the conversation we had in the car. Yes. Carpooling in Our together. exciting carpool conversation. Well, yeah, I yeah. was saying, and these texts touch on it, and especially Al from Nelson's there. Like When I watch the power play... My big question right now is, what's the bread and butter play? Like, what's the go-to play where, okay, this is what we're trying to set up. This is our first option. This is kind of our ideal way to score. And, you know, they used to have that with the Bo Horvat play, and it was very effective. Mm-hmm. Now, you made the point, and I think it's a good one, that sometimes you can become too reliant on that, and you're obsessed with trying to set that up to the detriment of the rest of the power play. I think we've seen that sometimes in years past with the PD one-timer. Yeah. Like, the PD one-timer has always been mostly hypothetical as a weapon. Like, Mm -hmm. it's mostly a decoy. Really, it's never been, like, the focus of a very successful power play, him scoring on that shot. It's never been Ovi. No, it's never been Ovi. It's mostly a decoy, but Not many people are Ovi, by the way. No. Just so everyone knows. But I was thinking about it kind of in terms of, like, if you're running an offense in football, 
you're going to have some bread and butter plays. And sure. you can't, that's not all you're going to do, but you want to have some things that you can rely on that are part of your identity that you feel really good about. Then the defense has to react to those and it should open up other options for you. And with mm-hmm. the Canucks, it's like, well, what's the baseline thing that they're trying to do? Now, the interesting part of this is Rick Tockett has said he's not a big plays guy. So maybe what I'm talking about is kind of counter to his philosophy where – He'd be an awful football coach. Exactly. Yeah. He'd be like, just just, just go what, out there and see what see happens, what opens up. See what opens up and take what the defense <laughs> gives you. It's like, uh – so maybe this is counter to his <laughs> philosophy. Maybe he doesn't want them to have a kind of bread and butter mm. play. Maybe he wants it to be more, as you said, just taking what opens up, taking what the defense gives you. Creative. But I think you need to have like a platform to build that creativity off. And yeah. that's what seems to be missing to me right now. Um, here's another text. On PP1, Hughes is the one guy who has the ability to dance his guy and walk down Main Street. He's dancing, but around the perimeter and deferring to flanks who are stationary. Uh, I think PKs have, and not just PK, other teams have adjusted to Hughes. They mm. know. like there, So there are two things that I credit for Hughes' goal scoring this season. Um, number one, he's clearly worked on a shot. He's made some great shots. Mm-hmm. But also... It's not just walking the line, it's beating a guy and then being able to go downhill, skate downhill, and skate himself into better scoring positions than just flinging it on net from the point. Um, I think other teams know that, and they're like, hey, be careful to the guys covering the point, but also adjust defensemen like you know when you talk about uh, a super elusive quarterback you're like okay we just need to maintain the contain right I think that's what they're doing with him so he's not forcing it because you don't want to force it either so I think teams have adjusted so now it's up to the Canucks power play to adjust right back yeah and half back passes to the center yeah back to the wing back to the center center holds it holds it holds it yeah, that that is, that is what the Canucks power play looked like at the end of the game yesterday, and that was the, that was that was a really frustrating power play to watch because they bat. It was what what your uh, what your colleague Drancer would call a high leverage yes, situation exactly. yeah. where you know you've got this opportunity, you did have some momentum, you'd had some chances five on five with uh, Hoaglander and. Horonic blasting away, and then Petey goes out there, and to his credit, uh, drew a penalty, and that's what he's pretty good at. Um, and so they had this opportunity to get their best players out there and to score a big goal. Um, it's funny, Josh in Vancouver texted in, uh, what do you guys think about a lotto line reunion to spark some scoring? Didn't have a chance to watch the game last night, but have been thinking it could, could help. You know when the lotto line is together? The power play on the power play, uh-huh. right? Like it's like I'm not I'm not making fun of you, Josh. I'm not trying to. I, I maybe maybe, but five on five right now for me isn't a huge problem for the Canucks. No. I actually think their top players played pretty well at five on five. You know, you're going into Colorado. You have to stop Nathan McKinnon, and they nearly brought his home point streak to a stop yesterday. He had an assist on the empty netter. Like that was his 
only point of the night. It was Ryan Johansson. Yeah. And it wasn't all his, people. I know he ended up with a lot of shots on goal, but you wouldn't look at that and say like Nathan McKinnon was dominating that game. The Canucks did a good job holding him uh, in check as much as you can, a phenomenal mm-hmm. player like that. Um, this person texts in unsigned. Uh, so I believe that means it's from Gary. Maybe Kuzmenko was more important to the power play than we thought. It's been since he left that it's really tanked. The thing was, he wasn't even consistently playing on the top power play unit when he was still on the team. And when he was out there, I mean, certainly based on the eye test, it didn't look like he was instrumental in what the power play was doing. He certainly wasn't putting up the points. So I'm not sure I buy that. I I wonder if what we're seeing is just a bunch of things coming together. One, trying to integrate Elias Lindholm into the mix, you know, a bad string of bounces. So your confidence is shot. And then maybe the coaching staff just trying to work on some different things. And it's all just kind of combined. So the power play has gone dry here. And, you know, again, on on the idea that Tockett is not a big plays guy, he just wants him to attack pressure. And you know, hey, if you beat if you beat somebody, then there's open space. Go to the net. It's like, well, but what what are you doing to create that opening, right? Because mm-hmm. right now it just seems like, as you were saying, and you're playing the clip, the the PK is in its shell. You're passing it on the perimeter, and those opportunities to attack aren't really being created. I mean, yeah. Like, what do you do to create those opportunities? And one of the solutions, one of the changes, I know people are yelling for it, is put Miller back on the left half wall. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's one. Uh, again, we're not going to get too much into the X's and O's of it, but JT Miller is a guy that has great vision out there and can create with his passes. Some of them are high-risk passes, and they'll get picked off, but he will go for those cross-seam passes that often have a great payoff. And just from that side, or he, can, he can snipe it from there too. He can snipe it from really there too. Well. Yeah. yeah. So maybe they need to go back to that. I think one of the challenging things for the Canucks over this last little while has been a lack of practice time too. Like you, you can't practice mm-hmm. when you've got this busy a schedule and this crazy a road schedule. So maybe that's going to help them a little bit when they finally get home. Um, but. You know, I know people want to see results right now. Yeah, the schedule's a good point, right? Because this is seven of the last nine on the road since the All-Star break, and they came home for just those those couple of games against Detroit and Winnipeg. Then you're right back out for this three-game set. You're back home for Boston on Saturday, and then you finally get two days off between games after that Boston game. Mm-hmm. Then there's still some tough teams on the schedule, for sure, but in terms of timing and travel, it really starts to thin out. So, you know, I've seen people texting in like, oh, the Lindholm trade was a mistake and all of that. They did it full well knowing, hey, maybe it's going to take a little time to figure out how to use him best, where he fits best in the lineup. Mm -hmm. Let's get him in early and give ourselves that time. Let's see what happens when they do, one, have a little bit more chance to rest, get that practice time, all of that. Uh, before we really start to panic here. Uh, Another text in, I don't understand the power play. They have some of the best hockey players in the league. They should be one of the best in the league. Um, Yeah, they should be, but look at the Penguins' power play. (laughs) They've got all these Hall of Famers out Uh there, and it's still not working for them. It's not good. Sometimes it just goes through slumps. Even like the Oilers a few years ago, I remember, they had some problems in the power play, and then they did turn around, and it's an incredible power play. Now, or I don't know, I'm checked in on the daily power really play good. rankings. It's really good, yeah. right? Um, and the Canucks need to find that again. 
I think they have the potential. I think there's a lot of good points being sent in and said by you, Jamie. Like I, I, I do think if they could find a bread and butter play that they could at least, you know how uh, defensively sometimes when you're struggling, you're like, we need to fall back on our system mm-hmm. and trust the system. Maybe if you have that singular objective that you know you're going to work for, and if something else comes up, feel free to use it. But if your single singular objective is to find that bread and butter play, whatever it is, that you can get back to, something to that. Fall back on. And I guess maybe, I don't think it's a I don't think it's the PD one timer though. No, but I don't I, think that's the play. Maybe the answer. I like is... working it down low, like on yeah. a power play. But then you know you you got. You know, and I think that's where a lot of success comes from. You like, you know, you, you eventually your, your whole idea is to work it down low to get, uh, you know, that's why the Horvat play yeah. works so well. Like you can't just pass it around on the perimeter. Eventually, you have to work it down low and then get some penetration into a shooting spot. Uh, James from Richmond, Texas, and this is something I was just going to say. Simple fix. Shoot the freaking puck. You miss 100% of the shots you don't take. It's cliche, but true. Go after rebounds and get some ugly goals. And I guess, yeah, rather than having one you know, bread and butter play to fall back on, what if the fallback is just, okay, we're going to shoot the puck a lot. We're going to try to get some rebounds. We're going to try to get some deflections. That's a strength of Lindholm's, Lindholm's game. Brock Besser has been really good at screens this year. Let's just fire away, and it might not look pretty, but we need to have that thing to fall back on. I'm usually not a big, oh, just shoot from anywhere it's- guy on the power play because, like, the point is to try to look for high-quality shots. And, and when think- you shoot and, and, and uh, you know, it gets blocked or there's a save – Oftentimes, it leads to a clearance. Well, this like, is the thing. It's a it's wasted. A it's it seems a, to figure yeah. them out, too, right? I yeah. mean, they're, like, they're on the perimeter a lot. Let's just keep them there. And that's what it is. So much of the time, it's but, the other team just keeping them to the outside because they're not taking any chances. When you are so – when you've been as static and as dry as the Canucks have been on the power play, I think mm-hmm. – you know, I'm not just saying, hey, shoot into the guy's shin pads, but – if you can get those screens, if you can get people in possession in position for deflections and tips, then you know what? Yeah, go for it. Fire away for a little bit. Blast away, as you would say about Philip Ronick, and uh, <laughs> and see what happens. Um, 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Uh, this one came in from Austin in Langley. Now, he framed it as a what we learned, even though it's a question because he wants to win those tickets. Uh, we'll, we'll keep you in the running, Austin, but I am going to read it right now. He says, do you think the recent run changes management's decisions at all? Feels like we had a bit of a team of destiny vibes going. It feels now like we're floundering a bit. Do you think Jim Rutherford and Alvin would think twice about swinging big now? I don't think Jim Rutherford, of all executives, is going to back off on his commitment to the idea that this team can win the Stanley Cup based on three losses in a row. If anything, he might look at this and say, I still think we can win, but I'm even more motivated to go out and add another significant piece now if we can. When you say significant piece, what do you mean by that? Like, do you think, but do you think there's, they'd still be trying to find a way to get a guy like Jake Gensel? So knowing what you hear reported about this front office I would imagine they're still talking about it and still checking in. Mm-hmm. Now, maybe more as a pure kind of we're doing due diligence and this is we look, we recognize this is probably not going to happen, yeah. but just in case because it's hard to see how that one could fit and you're giving up a lot of assets and all of that. It's hard, but it wouldn't surprise me at all if they're still talking about it, but anything like Jake Gensel is clearly 
the number one guy, the number one pending UFA who could potentially be available now. I would say everyone below Gensel, I'm sure they're having serious conversations about to see if they're a fit. Mm-hmm. I really wonder when, I, when would that happen? that deal with the Penguins for Gensel. They lost again mm-hmm. last night. That was a big game that they played with the Islanders, and the Islanders ended up winning it in overtime in Pittsburgh. I believe Pittsburgh came back to tie that game and then lost it in overtime. So They're reeling. They they really are. And I, I'm i not quite sure why they haven't been able to figure it out. Mo- mostly it's the power play, right? Like they, If you were to look at one major factor why the Penguins are in the position they are, it's their power play. If you think the Canucks power play is struggling, like oh, that's boy. the way it's been in Pittsburgh all season long. Um, maybe the mix isn't quite right in Pittsburgh. You know, I, uh, we talked yesterday about the addition of Eric Carlson, and you're like, oh, that's a, like ten million in cap space for Eric Carlson when you've already got Chris Letang. Maybe there was a better allocation of that cap space to build a more complete roster. But the funny thing about that is you would expect, if there's one thing you think Eric Carlson was going to help, it would be the power play. Yeah. You know what I mean? So like when their Mm -hmm. number one problem is the power play and also finishing at five on five as well. True. I don't know if taking the Eric Carlson money and spreading it around to like three, $3 million dudes is going to help your power player. Well, in in hindsight, it could have like, well, not, not the power play, but it could have helped. Like I get what you're saying, but it's just their specific problems are we can't run a power play and we don't have guys finishing shots. And you know, who's hard to watch on that power play right now? Gino. Yeah. But I th- but I th- but I also think the Penguins have like this issue where to take Gino off the first unit would be like a big deal or whatever you know like mm-hmm. it's it's almost like they are um, still bound by what the team has done before, kind of like when the Sedins were in Vancouver and you're like there's a loyalty factor that might be holding back the yep. team in some ways. Um, the Vegas Golden Knights. I'm gonna. I know we talked about this a little bit with Merrick, but I'm gonna be really curious to see what their injury situation is down the stretch. We all know Vegas enjoys taking care, uh, taking advantage of the LTI uh-huh. rules, um, and currently they've got Jack Eichel out, and even though they got Shea Theodore back yesterday, Mark Stone goes out of the lineup, and we all know that Mark Stone has a significant injury history. Um, we also know that Vegas is fairly comfortably in a playoff spot right now. So <laughs> could we see some LTI shenanigans from Vegas or is it too early? I, I, it's not too early to talk about it because that's when you no, make this, these decisions is, at the trade deadline, right? This is right? LTIR shenanigans season right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah, We're yeah. going into the thick of it. We're just a couple weeks out, uh, out from the trade deadline. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me at all. That's their MO. Mm-hmm. And they've done it with Mark Stone before. They know we're going to make the playoffs. Now, there is a question of seeding and home ice advantage still and all that. How much does that matter to them? How much do they prioritize it? I don't know. But the big question for me is, and you know, we were again, we were talking about this with Merrick. So let's say they do say, you know what? Mark Stone, you're going on LTI. Boom, we've got nine point five million in cap space <laughs> to work with. Like 
what are you going out and doing with it? Who are you yeah. going out and bringing in that's that's really moving the needle? Jake Gensel, I guess mm. maybe he could Do be they an have the assets for them. to to give up. I don't know for that. Yeah, who knows? I mean, I'm sure they could cobble something together, but I, I like I don't know as much. It's great to say, okay, we're going to put Mark Stone and LTI, and then we'll have all this cap space to mm-hmm. work with. Who are the players you're bringing in that are going to make? A significant difference. I think the other interesting story with Vegas, and as it relates to their health, is for a while there with L.A. struggling, the Kings and the Oilers both playing well, it looked like Vegas and Edmonton were going to be locked in uh, to that 2-3 matchup. L.A. probably finished fourth in the Pacific. I know. Now, all of a sudden, L.A., only three points behind Vegas with a couple of games in hand, they could easily hop over the Vegas Golden Knights, and that could set up a potential Canucks-Vegas first-round matchup. And I will say, for all of the talk of, oh, the Canucks can't beat good teams, look at their record against the best teams, I don't buy into that. They have beat good teams. They beat Carolina twice. They've beat Dallas. They've beat the Rangers. They beat, you know, they beat other teams. Uh, they beat Edmonton a bunch of times this year. The performance that worries me the most out of any performance this year for the Canucks was when Vegas came in and just absolutely dominated the Canucks' best players I think that was in November or December at Rogers Arena. Ever since Vegas came into the league, they've dominated the Canucks. Yep. I still think back to like the, a preseason game. <laughs> Do you remember that first preseason game that Vegas played in Vancouver and they came in and they just like killed the Canucks and we were like, ah, oh, yeah, whatever. I told this you won't the continue for eight years. <laughs> and it's just been years and years of the Vegas Golden Knights. Um, attacking the Canucks in waves like it's just it's just how they're built and how they play um I know the Canucks had in theory a close playoff series with them but it wasn't really no it was the Canucks run of play it was the Canucks holding on for dear life until they finally just let go of the ledge and fell (laughs) do you know what I mean oh 100 yeah so and the thing with that is one of the things I don't want I don't want I don't want I don't want Vegas no I mean but I don't want Edmonton either I would take the Kings over I would take a series with the Kings over those two although it would be like not ideal no I I would prefer their best I would prefer St. Louis (laughs) Yes. Some Nash, people will be Nashville. like, St. Louis has beaten us twice this year. Don't care. Yeah, don't care. Do not care. Um, I'm fascinated to see them play L.A. They haven't played L.A. yet this year. They've played every other team in the league, I yeah. believe, except one of their divisional rivals, which yeah, it's is weird. bizarre. Mm-hmm. They play them on February 29th, and that is a strong potential playoff matchup. I look at L.A. on paper, and I, I agree with you. I would take them over the Golden Knights, over the Oilers right now. But I think LA's we've seen them at their lowest, we've seen them at their highest. When they are really going, that's still a very, very daunting team. So man, if they get, if the Canucks can get back on track and finish first in the Western Conference, that is huge for their first round playoff matchup. Okay, tell the listeners what we have coming up next with Matthew Hamachek. All right, Matthew Hamachek, he is the director of new documentary series, The Dynasty on Apple TV. Big multi part show. Uh outlining the entire New England Patriots dynasty from the beginning, Robert Kraft buying the team, Bill Belichick becoming coach, Tom Brady being drafted and then taking over uh, from Drew Bledsoe, all the way to the six Super Bowl championships, to the divorce, uh, and ultimately the end of the Belichick and Brady era. 
in New England. So it looks at the entire story, the relationship between the principals, how they won, how it ended. The director of the dynasty, again, Matthew Hamachek, he's going to join us next. Really excited to chat with him a little bit about this story, putting it together, how he approached it. All of that uh, at 8 o'clock, Randy Janda will join us. And then at 8.30, we'll do your What We Learned. So text in What We Learned. Include the ticket emoji to win uh, for the chance to win a pair of tickets to the Bruins game on Saturday or a beer emoji for a chance to win a $100 gift card to Bridge Brewing. Matthew Hamachek up next here on Halford & Bruff Sportsnet 650. The most opinionated Canucks show out there. Canucks Talk with Jamie Dodd and Thomas Drans. Be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Halford & Bruff here, Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd filling in for Mike Halford here. Halford & Bruff brought to you by the Delari family of Acura dealers. Experience the Delari difference today. Visit your nearest Delari Acura dealer today. Meticulously brewed for quality and taste. Primetime craft beer is full flavor without compromise at a liquor store near you. Or visit the brewery to see how it's made. Uh, we now go to the Dispatch Plumbing, Heating, and Air Conditioning Hotline. Very excited for this chat. We are joined by Matthew Hamachek. He's the director of The Dynasty, now airing on Apple TV. Uh, and he joins us now. Matthew, thanks for doing this. How are you? Hey, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, we're uh, we're really excited, and you know, so the dynasty looking at the New England Patriots, the Brady Belichick area, the Super Bowl championships, also the the end of it, and you know, I was thinking, reading about it a little bit, and uh, and taking a look at the first episode, it's such a big story. There's so much of it. It's you know, decades plus of of people and events and uh, wins, losses, all of that. How did you even begin to kind of wrap your head around it and figure out how you wanted to approach this story? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I, I did not grow up a uh, New England Patriots fan. I have my own team. Uh, some of my family uh, grew up in um, Green Bay, Wisconsin, so they, they've indoctrinated me into being a Green Bay Packers fan. So what was nice about that was that I, I didn't really know a whole lot about the Patriots story, and as I started to get to talk to the you know, 70 players and coaches and league officials and rivals and all these things, it, it, it afforded me the ability to just actually ask questions and, and sort of get to know the story through their eyes instead of coming in with some kind of preconceived notion of what story I wanted to tell and why and, and just listen to the people who were in the rooms while all the decisions were made that led to great success and you know, the people who were also in the room when this thing came falling falling apart at the end, it was just fascinating for me. Did the, did your conception of kind of what the story was or how you're going to tell it change over the course of, as you said, learning from all these people, talking to them and putting it together? Constantly. And I think that in a way that's the case on most docs. Um, you know, there's this great, the, the great documentary filmmaker who says that if you end up with the story that you started with, it means you weren't listening along the way. Hmm. And I think that, you know, it, and, and I think that's sort of a good rule for going about something like this. But yes, it was constantly changing and constantly evolving because 
you would you would hear about one little detail of one story you can take like in the first in the first for example um in the second episode i think in the first actually there's a moment where Ty Law who was a who was a defensive player for the Patriots he talks about how he had given up a um a condo at a discounted rate. He said he, he claims he gave Tom Brady a hundred fifty thousand dollar discount because he was a rookie and he was trying to help him out. And I just thought, oh, so generous of this guy. He's so sweet. And then I went to go talk to Tom shortly thereafter. I said, Tom, by the way, Ty Law mentioned that he gave you a discount. And just as I'm trying to get the words out, Tom starts saying, I can't say it on the radio, but basically that Ty is full of it, and uh, and that he thinks Tom actually thinks he got sweet. So there's all this sort of this thing where. You, you you think you're starting to get to the bottom of something, and uh, you go talk to somebody else, and they take you know they, they they take you down a different path, and it's 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 part of what makes the process of making a ten part series like this so great. What was it like chatting with Bill Belichick? Um, because it is not a, always looked easy for media members that cover the team to get anything out of Bill Belichick. <clears throat> Uh, you know, I, I kind of approached Bill the same way I did every single other person that came and sat in the chair. And, you know, it's a question that I've been getting a lot lately. And my feeling is always this, you know, and this, this goes to, especially towards the end of the story as things start to unravel. The, the way I looked at it is there's a scene coming up in the episode that's going to air this Friday, which is episode four, the, the Spygate episode and the 2007 season. In one of the games, Bill, the Patriots are playing Washington football team, formerly known as the Redskins, and they're up 40-something to nothing on them. It's the fourth quarter. It's fourth down. It's basically, like, I wouldn't want to say it's a kneeling territory, but it's pretty close to it. And, um, and instead of taking a field goal or taking a knee or whatever, Bill decides to score a touchdown and take it 40, 50-something 50 to nothing. And uh, one of the reporters at the end of the game says, Bill, why did you decide to do that? And he says, what do you want me to do, kick a field goal? So um, my philosophy in sort of sitting down with Bill was, I'm not going to take it easy on him um, because that's his philosophy for life and respecting him and sort of, you know, making sure he has to answer the same questions that everybody else does. And, um it was it was sort of the same way with everybody else. In Bill's case, you know, he came in and there were definitely some questions that I think he probably wish, wishes weren't asked. And the reason you see me asking those questions or hear me asking them rather is because unlike everybody else who sat down, there were times when Bill tried to give, you know, these one or two word responses to things. And um, that's the only reason you really hear my voice as the episodes go on. And one of the times that that happens is actually during the uh, Spygate episode. And what happened there? With, 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 you mean what with, happened with my question with Bill? Yeah, yeah. Bill said something to the effect of, uh, you know, I feel like I've already made my statement on that. And what was, what was interesting is we had found in the archives, whether it was on the Internet or something that we found in the archives of one of the news stations, Bill had actually done only really one in-depth interview ever on Spygate. Mm -hmm. um, and he did it with a journalist named Armin Katayan. And Bill and Armin, I believe, had had a relationship that, that had built up over many, many years. And Armin 
um, in that interview. And Bill in that interview, it's basically the only time that Bill has ever fessed up to Spygate and doing anything. And what he says there is that he made a mistake. And so when Bill said, you know, I feel like I've already said what I want to say about this, it gave me the ability as a filmmaker to then say, okay, fair enough. And if that's what you, that's what you want to point to, then here this thing is. And here's this interview where you go into depth about it. And so that's, that's the way we put it together. So, um, you know, it was, it was an honest answer. And I think anybody who's watched Bill over the years knows that that's one way that he can answer questions. But the other way that he answers it is in, this, in both of the episodes that are coming up. He tells this incredible story about how uh, Lawyer Malloy, uh, you know, these are, these are, they're going to the Super Bowl, Super Bowl 36 against the Rams, and Lawyer Malloy feels that his, his, his um, hotel room is a little too small. And so it's this, big, it's this back and forth between the two of them. And you just see a different side of Bill when he tells a story like that because it just makes him light up. And he does the same thing when he talks about Randy Moss, calling Randy Moss, and, and Randy's in a club and doesn't believe that it's actually Bill Belichick <laughs> calling him. And the two of them bounce off of each other, and Bill and, and Randy keeps hanging up on Bill as the story goes. And, and um, Bill says, well, I guess he doesn't want to come to New England after all. And, you know, Bill, Bill's got like a huge smile while he's telling it. So, look, you know, it's one of those things where, and, and, if, and people who are diehard Patriots fans have probably watched him. He did, you know, a thing for NFL 100, and he's done, you know, and he just gave a speech at Dante Scarnecchia's uh, Hall of Fame induction ceremony for the Patriots. And, you know, what you realize is that when Bill wants to turn it on, he can definitely do it, and he's really, really charismatic, and I'm sure that's the side of Bill that the players talk about a lot, which is that, you know, he's He's got this sort of sardonic, sharp wit to him. So, you know, a multifaceted guy. How did this all come together for you? Like, what was what was in it for everyone who sat down with you? Um, it sounds like you got most of the key players in all this. Um, why did they agree to talk to you? Well, I think it's the same reason anybody talks for a documentary, right? Which is, you know, you have a chance to be... I, what I always tell people when I go talk to them is, and they say, well, why should I do this? And I always say, well, this, this is going to happen one way or another. This story is going to be told and we're making this thing. I want to give you the opportunity to tell the story the way that you see it because the people who sit and talk are the people that essentially write history, it's, you know, and, and that was the thing that made this story so unique is that, you know, there's been articles and there's been books written over time, right? And some of them, like, there was a book called Education of the Coach, it was a great book by uh, Halberstam that, that was about Bill. And, you know, then Tom Brady had his docuseries. But there were always, it always felt to me like there were these very specific lenses through which people were viewing the story of the Patriots, whether it was the first part of the dynasty, the second part of the middle, whatever. Or there's even been things that have been written by people, and it's a lot of off-the-record anonymous sources, and you can never tell who's saying this. And when you, when you, you know, when you read stuff, you're just like, well, okay, but what's the motivation behind this person saying this? Does this person have an agenda? What I felt like was so unique about this project is this wasn't through a specific lens, and that was really, really important to us, is to say, here are all of these people. Here is the way the people that were actually in the rooms all see the story going. And like we talked about, whether it's something like the, the Ty Law, Tom Brady thing, or something else, 
we let people bounce off of each other and give their opinions, and those can differ, but we wanted to present all of it and be fair to everybody and never have a situation where, you know, you're just setting up a straw man just to kick them down uh, the next scene and let people say, you know, there's there's times when you watch stuff and you just, oh, they're just letting this person say the dumbest possible thing they said in their interview just to make them look foolish. And it was really important to us to be fair to everybody and, you know, just let everybody talk. Uh, we're talking to Matthew Hamachek. He's the director of The Dynasty, now airing on Apple TV, new docuseries looking at the New England Patriots in the Bill Belichick, Tom Brady era. And, you know, Matthew, one of the things I find really fascinating about this project is for all of the winning they did and the incredible success that they had, you know, this is not a story that's uh, that's all rainbows and unicorns and everyone rides off into the sunset with a happy ending at the end of it. There's also a lot of conflict uh, and, and a lot of uh, friction between some of the main players. And, of course, at the core of that is the relationship between Bill Belichick and Tom Brady. How would you describe the relationship between the coach and the quarterback? Well, I think in a lot of ways the first half of the series is essentially about, and especially the, the first two episodes, in a way, are about the two of them falling in love with each other, right? If, if you can look at it that way. It's, it's about these two people, and then Robert Kraft and sort of this as well. It's the three outsiders who start out, you know, Robert is not at that time, you know, this billionaire who can just cut a check and get a team. Um, you know, Bill has an underwhelming stint, as, it's, as, as Jackie Mack puts it, in Cleveland beforehand, Tom, as everybody knows, is the 199th pick. They're all these outsiders. And then Bill discovers Tom and uh, says, this is my guy. And you see the pressure that Bill has on him when he's making that decision. Everybody in the media is basically saying, this is the dumbest decision possible. Like, I can't believe this. But Bill sees something in Tom, and Tom sees something in Bill. And they talk about how without each other, none of this would have been possible. And then that Porsches, they win three and four years, and then even in even in episode four, um, <clears throat> when Bill's back is up against the wall because of the Spygate scandal, you know you see Tom literally and figuratively putting his arms around Bill and saying, "We got you." And there's this great moment where Teddy Bruschi says, um, "How do we feel about being coached by Bill Belichick?" And the whole team goes, "Oh yeah," and. It, and even though I'm sure Spygate isn't a moment that Bill necessarily wants to relive, I think that that episode and the Spygate episode is one of the more, how can I put it? I have more sympathy and empathy for Bill Belichick in that episode than almost any other one in the entire series, because we really go into depth about like his feelings of betrayal and things like that. Now you were talking about, the overall relationship between Bill and Tom, though, obviously this is a 10-part series, and one thing that was really important to us is that it felt like it arced over the course of that 10-part series. It wasn't that this episode was an island and didn't relate to anything else. So essentially you're watching a very, very long movie over 10 episodes. And, yeah, by the end of that relationship, there's this inherent tension because in episode five, Tom goes out, he has a knee injury, and he realizes for the first time ever that if he goes out, the show goes on without him, particularly with a coach like Bill, because that's sort of one of Bill's superpowers is that he takes whatever is in front of him and he makes magic with it. And that's when Tom starts to say things like, how do I not go back on the operating room table again? How do I not break? And 
there you have this coach in Bill who's very pragmatic, who has all this data in front of him that says unequivocally that, that every quarterback at a certain age starts to fall off of a cliff. And so those two ideas, a coach who says, this is going to come to an end, and a quarterback who's saying, I'm going to be the one person in the history of quarterbacks that doesn't you know, follow that pattern, that tension is what um, really sort of you start to see unfold over the course of the end of the dynasty, and then other players start to talk about other things that happened that created tension within the building. And, you know, you very slowly start to see this thing unravel over the course of the last three or four episodes of the series. I don't want to ask you to, to spoil some of the later episodes of the series that are, aren't out yet on Apple TV, but, you know, as you talked about, that growing tension that eventually leads to a breakup between Brady and Belichick, Brady going to the Buccaneers, can you give us, give us a yeah. sense of, like, what was that like on a day-to-day level, whether it's specific incidents or just what was it like for not just those two, but for the team, the organization as a whole, living with that tension? I think you'll hear all of the players, uh, uh, many of the players talk about it, whether it's Rob Gronkowski, Danny Amendola. Um, you know, I think there were a lot of things that contributed to it. It wasn't just the relationship issues between Bill and Tom. There were other things that were going on as well. But those guys go into great depth about what it was like to be in that building. And, you know, one of the things that the Patriots and and Coach Belichick did so well was they were constantly motivating and creating an environment where everybody there knew that you had to be constantly trying to find an edge. How do you be the, the team that is, you know, running on, up the hills um, constantly? How do you drink the most water? How do you lift the most? How do you do this the most? And that can be draining mentally, I think, on a lot of guys. But the, the thing that made it tolerable was every single year you're competing for a championship, right? So the question is, when you're in this pressure cooker environment, and I think it was really mentally fatiguing for people, it's okay when you win a championship, and there's, it's okay even if there's sort of chinks in the armor as long as you win, but what happens when you finally don't? And I think in you know the latter episodes, you start to see what happens when um, – against the Eagles uh, in the Super Bowl when Malcolm Butler is benched, how that decision and other things that are happening that year lead to what one journalist who we talked to said that was in the locker room after that Super Bowl sort of half-jokingly but half-truthfully half sort of says that it felt almost like there was a mutiny uh, going on mm-hmm. within the team. So it was, it was a fascinating thing to hear about because I didn't really know that story all that well, and talking to the guys that were there, it clearly impacted them. Matthew, really appreciate you taking some time to chat with us. Uh, the project sounds fascinating. I mean, there's a, I'm sure there's a million other stories uh, you could share with us about uh, about making it and talking to all of these people. So uh, thanks for doing this. I'm excited to check it out. No, I appreciate you having me on. Have a good one. That is Matthew Hamachek. He is the director of The Dynasty on Apple TV. Uh, some of the episodes available now, new ones dropping weekly. Uh, as well on Apple TV, and I really enjoyed that chat. And I got to say, I mean, I'm a, I was a a dyed in the wool Patriots hater, right? Growing up and watching them win Super Bowl after Super Bowl, yeah. and everyone fawning over Tom Brady. Are you a Seahawks, really just Seahawks fan? Uh, not really. I'm like no. a extraordinarily casual Seahawks fan. Okay, I don't really have a football team. I just okay. didn't didn't care for the Pats. Right. 
so, you know, I see, oh, the Dynasty 10-part docuseries. I was like, oh, boy, here we go. But as he said in that interview, and you asked him, like, how did you get all this access? It wasn't, well, Tom Brady's funding this. <laughs> you know, yeah, 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 You know yeah, what yeah, I mean? It yeah. was, we're doing this, and so they can either talk and be a part of it or not. We're doing it anyway. Because some people have uh, said... I think there was an article that called this thing like an infomercial, mm-hmm. and it was part of Robert Kraft's bid to get into the football yes. hall of fame. Um, but I've read a number of reviews that have referenced that and said, "No, this is not it that." Avo- from this what I can that. tell, and just talking to Matthew there, it avoids the trap. I don't think this phenomenon necessarily started with the Last Dance, but probably that's the most notable example of. Mm-hmm. The subject is running this show, so we're just going to tell the story in the most positive light. And I think the fascinating thing about this is, yeah, they won six Super Bowls together, but the most compelling part of it is how it all went wrong. Yeah, (laughs) and now they hate each other. That's the most interesting part of the story, as impressive as the winning is. I I should have asked this question, but um, you were doing such a great job with the interview. Thank you, bro. And I usually don't trust Halford, so usually I'm jumping in all the time, but I trust you for some reason. Get well, Halford. Um, the, the question that I would have is now I've pulled a Halford and forgot oh, all, boy. all about my, my question is, is sometimes is, I start a sentence and just hope I yeah, find yeah, it along yeah. the no, way. <laughs> my question is, could it have gone any, any other, other way? way? That's an interesting one. Right. Yeah. Like is, was there another way for Bill Belichick to get all that he got out of his group without, hurting some feelings and I think mm-hmm. that is putting it mildly. Yes. Because he depended on Tom Brady so much and he was so hard on Tom Brady and a lot of people were like, "Why do you keep coming back?" And eventually Brady didn't, right? Like eventually there was a breaking point yep. where he was like, "Hey, I'm going to go my own way." And I think there's a quote that came out of the series was like, "Even if I wanted to play until I was 50, I was not going to be re-signing with the New England Patriots. And then Brady goes to Tampa Bay and wins a Super Bowl, and I bet that felt pretty good. Oh, yeah, I can imagine. And just to your point about the work environment, there's a, a reading other interviews uh, with Matthew Hamachek in prepping for that interview, and there was a, an anecdote about Gronk. Mm-hmm. At one point, it was so bad, driving to the practice facility you know, to go about his day as an employee of the team, as a member of the team, and just sitting in his car, dreading getting out. And like, like you never think is, Gronk has a bad yeah, it's day. Like, this is Rob Gronkowski. It's not time exactly for some like, football again. <laughs> yeah, not exactly this like shrinking violet, yeah. sensitive guy. And he's like, oh man, I don't want to do that. And I find that fascinating because uh, not me. I love my job, but so many people can relate to that, right? Mm-hmm. Like driving to work and just thinking, I hate my boss I don't so much. Do this. Yeah. yeah, I don't. I Cam Barrett can I be like co- that. I hate know? my coworkers. Yeah, Cam Cam Bar- Yeah, that's what it's like for Halford, probably actually, uh, and A Dog and Laddie. And wait a minute, I'm having a great day, and then I see you guys walk in. I'm like, am I the problem? Ah, here we go. Uh, okay, don't worry, everyone out there. We're gonna get back to the Canucks talk. Yeah, I, I'm sorry. There was we, one, well, actually, you know to be fair, there was only one I guy. I was gonna that say we only yeah. got one yeah. upset text. Yeah, I was so actually surprised. Pretty good, that, to be honest. Pretty good. Yeah, I apologize. I apologize for that. Uh, Sorry, we'll break down the Canucks power play for another thirty minutes again. <laughs> well, Randy is going to join us true, next. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we'll talk to Randy about the game last night in Colorado. What's coming up for the Canucks? And uh, yes, we will probably touch on the power play with Randy. Uh, you're listening to the Alfred and Pro Show on Sportsnet 650.